0: During the month of May, CDSW is running a listener survey to better understand how we can serve you, our listeners. Visit cdsw.com slash survey to have your say and be entered to win one of two Sled Island Discovery
1: Passes.
2: The next stop, Sprawlcast.
1: You're listening to Sprawlcast, my name is Jeremy Clausus, and I'm the founder and editor of The Sprawl, and Sprawlcast is a show for curious Calgarians who want more than the daily news grind. We make this show in collaboration with CGSW 90.9 FM in Calgary, and we are broadcasting on Treaty 7 land. This is the home of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Sutina Nation, Stony Nakota Nation, and Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3.
3: You get a society where people from different walks of life are no longer coming into contact with each other, no longer know each other uh, in any meaningful way. And I think this is a real problem for a democratic society.
1: If you live in Calgary, you probably think of it as one big city. But today we're gonna look at Calgary a little bit differently. We're gonna look at it as three cities within the larger city. And the reason we're looking at it this way is because Calgary is increasingly becoming divided by income. It's not something that's immediately visible to most of us, but it's something that's happening. In fact, Calgary has become the most income unequal major city in the country, according to a report that came out last year.
3: The three cities of uh, Calgary study actually originated in Toronto uh, with a study done Uh, by David Holchansky, who's a professor in the Faculty of Social Work at the University of Toronto.
1: This is Byron Miller, and he's a political geographer at the University of
3: Calgary. What it was, was an attempt to identify patterns of income change uh, across the Toronto metropolitan area. And the, the whole idea behind this notion of three cities is the idea that there are some places, some parts of the, of the metropolitan area where incomes are relatively stable. Uh, some parts where incomes are going up, and some parts are where incomes are going down. And of course, you know that that in itself is is fairly obvious. But the concern is whether this is happening in a geographically specific way, such that you're you're seeing the development of neighborhoods that are increasingly becoming poor uh, or neighborhoods that are increase, increasingly becoming wealthier and wealthier leading to a real socio-spatial form of polarization so that rather than all of us feeling like we're part of the the same social fabric that some people feel very much disadvantaged uh, by virtue of the fact that they're living in conditions of of economic decline and other people uh, being very privileged uh, associated with conditions of rising incomes.
1: Yeah, because we all know uh, income inequality is on the rise, but uh, what we didn't necessarily know before uh, in Calgary is
3: where, right? That's right. And I think there's a general recognition that uh, societies in capitalist countries are becoming increasingly uh, unequal, uh, that they're becoming increasingly polarized. Uh, We've you know, heard a lot in in the news over recent years about rising income inequality. Uh, Piketty's book uh, on on capital, uh, I think, brought a lot of attention to that. Um, we see it reflected in contemporary politics. Uh, what is not necessarily clear to everyone is the way that plays out geographically. So the the fact that we're seeing increasing income inequality could actually take place in the same way everywhere. So for instance, instead of having neighborhoods where everybody is more or less middle class, you could have neighborhoods where there is a middle class, but then there's also uh, people who are living uh, uh, in, in lower middle income ranges or even in poverty, and people living uh, uh, with very substantial economic resources. And that could all be in the same neighborhood. So it doesn't necessarily have to play out in a way that leads to, to geographical uh, polarization. But what we see when we look at the data geographically is that in fact this is playing out uh, in the form of what we call socio-spatial polarization. In other words, there are parts of the city that are becoming poor, parts of the city that are becoming rich, and actually a relatively small part of the city that's still stable.
1: All right, so let's go through these three cities now. Byron Miller is going to take us through each one. He wrote this study along with two others. And what the researchers did was they looked at Calgary neighborhoods in 1980, and they looked at those same neighborhoods in 2010. They wanted to get a big picture view of what was happening in Calgary over time. And so City 1 is going to be our first stop, and City 1 is where incomes have increased. Now, this area covers much of
3: the inner city. If you've lived in Calgary for at least 20 years or so, you probably remember the days when downtown Calgary had a fair amount of poverty. Uh, There was a lot of um, low-end market uh, rate housing, uh, particularly around Victoria Park um, uh, and throughout the Beltline. uh, And... Uh, a lot of the inner city neighborhoods were not particularly well off. Uh, uh, Flash forward to the present day, and these are actually some of the wealthiest parts of the city, Uh, or to be more correct, I should say higher income, Uh, but their income and wealth is is correlated. Um, These are areas that have gentrified. Now
1: we're gonna leave city one and go to city two, which is actually the smallest city, both in terms of area and population. (laughs)
3: City two are those areas where incomes are stable, and uh, they are scattered in a variety of suburban locations, um, also in the northwest, and again uh, areas in the in the southeast and southwest suburbs. Um, this is actually a comparatively small part of the city. Uh, we're actually seeing massive change in patterns of, of income across across the city. And those, so those areas that are relatively stable compared to 20 or 30 years ago are actually the least common.
1: In other words, city two has shrunk dramatically with the erosion of the middle class. In 1970, more than two-thirds of all census tracts in Calgary were middle income. But by 2010, that had dwindled down to just 41%. Okay, so that's city two. We're going to go on now to city three, which is the biggest city in terms of population. But first, one important note to keep in mind as we keep discussing all of this. When
3: we are looking at income data, we're looking at uh, the incomes of individuals, not households. And when we classify uh, the different so-called cities, uh, we're, uh, we're looking at percentage change. Okay, so we're looking at where incomes are going up, where incomes are staying stable, when they're, where they're going down. That doesn't necessarily take into account the baseline. So you could actually have a neighborhood that was relatively well off but is seeing income decline. And even with the income decline is still relatively well off. Uh, you could have uh, neighborhoods where incomes are low but increasing, uh, and yet overall incomes are still on the whole low. So we're really looking at the change, the patterns of change. So with that in mind, it would be
1: simplistic to say that one of these cities is rich and another is poor, for example. It's not quite that simple. Okay, so let's keep going now to City 3.
3: So City 3 is where we're seeing significant decline in income. It's particular suburban areas, um, the... The north central and northeast part of the city is one area where we're seeing significant declining incomes. Uh, we also see it in parts of the southwest, which is which is a bit of a curiosity because those who know Calgary know that the southwest is overall relatively high income. But we're what we're seeing in the southwest is most likely uh, the effects of people who are relatively well off retiring, uh, and as they Move into retirement and are living off of their pensions. They have lower incomes. They are still relatively well off, even though we're seeing declines in incomes in those areas. In the northern, central, northern eastern parts of the city, uh, it's something different. And what
1: is the social makeup of of that of that area of the city in terms of that that third city you're talking about? Right.
3: Well, it's diverse, uh, tends to be working class, also heavy concentration of immigrants, um, heavy concentration of visible minorities, although certainly not the only concentrations of visible minorities. And there are uh, concentrations of visible minorities in areas where you see increasing increasing income, so parts of uh, uh, the, the center city, for instance. But by and large, there there tends to be A fairly strong correlation, uh, particularly in the northeastern part of the city, with uh, the presence of immigrants and visible minorities. Byron Miller
1: and his colleagues aren't the first ones to look into this. In fact, Nahed Nenshi gave a TED Talk on this very subject before he was elected mayor in 2010. His talk was about the patterns of growth and change that Calgary was experiencing over time. And he began his talk by talking about how Every Saturday, he would read the Calgary Herald's new home section. And there, he found what he called a troubling map.
0: The reason it's troubling is because it's colour-coded. And it's colour-coded, in terms of new neighbourhoods, by what sorts of people ought to live there, in terms of income. income. Pink is um, starter homes. And in Calgary, a starter home means a home that costs less than $300,000. Blue is estate homes. And if you were to be able to see the colours, and we'll talk much more about this, you'll see that we're building neighbourhoods where only a particular kind of people live. And I thought this was challenging. And I thought to myself, has it ever been thus? Have we always segregated ourselves uh, into neighbourhoods, into communities by income? And that led me to a series of interesting explorations. One of the things I started to do with the assistance of my colleague Natalie O'Toole at Mount Royal University is to start using some mapping software, some geographic information software, to start looking at the evolution of Calgary and how things have changed. My thesis being that people are not living together, they are living more and more apart as the city grows. So this here is a map of diversity, ethnic diversity, by neighbourhood in Calgary. Nenshi used his own neighbourhood of Coral Springs as an example. 1996, Coral Springs was about one-half, 50% non-white. It was by far the most uh, non-white neighbourhood in the city, except for Chinatown. And the whole city as a whole was about 16% non-white. picture in 2006 is very different. Coral Springs is now about 82% non-white. And the rest of the city is about... 20-ish percent non-white. So things have changed. Very few kids go to school like my cousin did and graduate from high school as the only non-white student in school. But at the same time, something is troubling that you can see, if we were to take a red line, and draw it down Child Trail, deke around the university, go around downtown, we have two very different cities. The city on top is about 40 percent non-white. The city under the red line is about 8 percent non-white. And I use a red line on purpose, by the way. It refers to the practice of certain real estate agents in the United States to redline neighborhoods, to actually say to people, you can't live there, that neighborhood's not for you. And there's ample evidence that that sort of thing happens in Calgary.
1: And then he took a look at income and he showed a map from 1991.
0: By and large, back then, the city of Calgary was pretty average. Most neighborhoods were average. They had rich people and they had poor people living in them. And it's sort of mixed up in this mean. When we got to 2001, it started to look a little bit different. We started to see some neighbourhoods that were less wealthy, some that were more wealthy. Then he
1: showed another map from 1991 that showed neighbourhoods that were 30% below the median income. So
0: there's a few of them.
1: Interestingly and contrary
0: to popular belief, none of those are in my part of the city in the northeast. But there are a few of them. By 2006 it starts to look quite different. And we start to have very serious pockets of poverty that occur throughout the city.
1: Now let's go back to the three cities report. It talks about how in 2010, there's a distinctively new geography of low income in which inner city poverty has given way to a vast region of low and very low income in the northeast sector of the city. Now, this is still from 2010. So this data is almost a decade old now. But Miller and his colleagues have done an updated analysis that looks at data from 1980 and 2015. They found that in that time, Calgary household incomes went up by 31%. But affluent and poor communities did not see equivalent changes. And they say that this makes Calgary a prime example of a dividing city. So how do you bridge that divide? Well, there's no easy answer. But Nenshi had a suggestion before he became mayor. At his TED Talk, he showed a map that showed recreational facilities in Calgary and where they had been built, predominantly in the south of the city. And he showed that in the northeast and north central communities, they were getting short shrift. So what that
0: suggests to me is that if you truly want to build neighborhoods that are welcoming to everyone, that welcome participation from everyone, from the rich and the poor... In fact, what you need to do is overinvest in those neighborhoods that are seen by real estate agents as less desirable in order to create that kind of mixing. Just as importantly as it is to invest in things like affordable housing to create the mixing on the other side.
1: I think there's a follow up story to be done about Nenshi's record in this regard. But there has been
2: some progress made. So it's really about trying to find ways to understand this information and be able to then build it into public policy as well.
1: This is Leslie Evans with the Federation of Calgary Communities. She's one of the authors of the Three Cities Report.
2: I think it's exciting that we've got the uh, the the max lines and that because it does take us into some of these uh, city threes. Uh, but I think there's so much more to do. And that's just one piece of it. Uh, other things could be diversifying housing. And, and the city has, uh, you know, stepped forward with secondary suites and back lane uh, back alley housing and that, which I think will help um, as well because those will probably start popping up in City One. Uh, so it might help to actually create uh, more mixed communities and that actually that's what we want we want people of all income levels living in each community that brings out the diversity and and uh, doesn't create a homogeneous community of rich or poor but a vibrant community of people from all walks of life
1: let's go back now to more of my interview with byron miller we keep as a city uh building suburbs new suburbs right uh, and so does this research give insight into what we might be doing there? Like, are we building new neighborhoods of poverty potentially, or do we know?
3: Boy, uh, that's a good question. And, uh, <laughs> I, I suppose the, the short answer is that we don't really know. Um, one, one thing to keep in mind when we're thinking about new communities is this is the housing in the new communities is almost almost always market housing. Uh, it's it's not social housing. It, it generally is not receiving various types of subsidy. So, the people who move into these neighborhoods are only the people who have the economic wherewithal to do so. Uh, and, so I, I'd be less likely to suggest that uh, that these new neighborhoods are are you know future. Sites of, of of poverty, although you know that could be the case, uh, d- depending on on how the economy turns and, and whether people who move into these new communities are able to continue to uh, earn uh, decent incomes. But I think what it what it definitely shows is how the market is a sorting mechanism, uh, and and I mean this you know both economically and geographically. So. You know, we often think about housing markets in terms of free choice and that people live where they want to live. At least, that's the ideology. That's not the reality. That lots of people are living places where they don't want to live, and they live in places where they don't want to live because those are the places they can afford. Right. So, the newer developments are generally not going to be the cheapest housing. Uh, They they may be, you know, there may be a fair amount of comparatively affordable housing, but nonetheless. You have to have money for a down payment. You have to be able to keep up the mortgage. And if you're living on the, on the economic edge, chances are those, are those are not the people who are gonna be moving into these new communities. So where do people who are in an economically precarious situation locate? Well, they locate, generally speaking, uh, where the market prices are lowest. And, and that's what we're seeing in, in Calgary is this sorting out of people Uh, into different parts of the city according to patterns of housing affordability.
1: And in the inner city, meanwhile, um, part of your study uh, shows that in some parts of that inner city and that first, what you call city one, uh, Mm -hmm. incomes have gone up not just slightly, but uh, exponentially, uh, which then has an effect on housing prices and... That's right. It becomes, yeah. Uh, yeah.
3: you can't live there. That's right. It, it becomes, in many ways, sort of a, a vicious circle. These places are marketed to higher-income people. Higher-income people uh, move into these neighborhoods. They, they come to view them as desirable, and so that's where they're going to spend their money, which reinforces this pattern of desirability, which leads to higher market prices. We take the market as a, as a given, uh, it's important to keep in mind that there are societies where we also have non-market mechanisms uh, for providing housing, and I, I guess so, sort of the bottom line that I would take away from from what we're witnessing in Calgary is that as long as we rely almost exclusively on market mechanisms, we're going to see the market sorting people in space, uh, sorting people into different parts of the city according to their incomes. Uh, it's only when residential location is not dependent upon income that you're going to start to see uh, greater diversity within neighborhoods greater social integration within neighborhoods and and how do we do that are there uh, <laughs> examples that come to mind or there there are definitely examples that come to mind so I've, I've lived you know a significant portion of my life outside of North America and um, I did a sabbatical, actually, in uh, in the Netherlands in 2010. And while I knew that there was a significant social housing sector in the Netherlands before I even went there, I wasn't aware until I got there just how significant that social housing sector is. So about half of all the social housing in the Netherlands, excuse me, half of all the housing in the Netherlands is social housing. Uh, let me rephrase that. Half of the housing in the major cities. If you go to some of the smaller towns and villages, then, then social housing plays a much less significant role. But in the major cities, about half of it is social housing. And it does vary in quality to some extent, but a lot of it is actually very, very good quality. Uh, and it's, it's not, not considered in any way stigmatized. In fact, uh, there are long waiting lists to get into it. Uh, so you can get into very good quality housing and pay relatively low rents. Uh, the rents are geared to uh, geared to income. Um, so if you're very low income, if you if you are allocated a social housing unit, you pay relatively little rent. If if you're a higher income person, you can still move into it. It's not it's not housing of the last resort. It's considered very good and and very desirable housing for the most part. And uh, because it's desirable, you tend to get much greater social mixing. Right um that's an example of a non-market mechanism and it's really based on certain eligibility criteria social need is certainly one of them but because there is so much social housing uh, it it doesn't it's not limited just to those who are at the bottom of the economic hierarchy. it includes the broad middle class uh, and there are lots of people in the broad middle class who want to live in this actually well-built, well-designed, desirable housing. This is a relative thing. I'm not, I don't want to paint the Netherlands as some paradise, uh, although some scholars have. Uh, I'm, I wouldn't go quite that far, but I do think that this is something we need to be looking at if we're really concerned about increasing segregation um, because what markets do is they allocate resources according to the ability to pay. And with the structural changes in our economy, you're seeing more and more people, a much larger portion of society that is living in very precarious circumstances, very little ability to pay, and therefore they end up living in the only in the neighborhoods where the rents are, are the very lowest. Mm-hmm. And so you tend to get concentrated poverty as a result of this. And the, the, the reverse or the converse is true as well, where people with high incomes are increasingly flocking to a handful of neighborhoods, uh, and they are increasingly concentrated in those neighborhoods, and you get a society where people from different walks of life are no longer coming into contact with each other, no longer know each other uh, in any meaningful way. And I think this is a real problem for a democratic society.
1: And and do you know uh, why uh, Toronto and Calgary have this in common, is there any specific uh Facets or characteristics of the city that,
3: uh, yeah, that make this parallel. Well, I mean, there's there's some very big, you know, macro level changes that are going on in terms of the structure of the economy, and these are not specific. Uh, these are not specific to to any particular city, but but it has to do with uh, the, the the changing economic structure of capitalist economies, and it has to do with. Uh, neoliberal policies that basically have resulted in the dismantling, uh, to a certain extent, of, of the social safety net, uh, which basically means that you have more people living in poverty and more people who are, who are making very substantial incomes. Um, that coupled with the fact that there has been a uh, wholesale dismantlement of uh, social housing programs Uh, across Canada, beginning in the 1980s. Um, This is also something that David Holchansky has written about. Uh, There have been some modest improvements in terms of social housing provision in recent years, but they're relatively modest. And we are are nowhere near uh, what we need to be in terms of providing good quality, uh, desirable uh, housing for those who are on low incomes. Uh, the, the I don't have good numbers on the, on the percentage of housing units in Calgary that would be considered social housing or public housing, but it's something on the order of 2 two to 3% of the housing stock. As I mentioned in the Netherlands, in the, in the big cities of the Netherlands, it's 50%. Okay, So the 2 to 3% that we do have in social housing is housing of the last resort. This is for people who, who can't find good quality housing in the market. Okay. Uh, And not surprisingly, that housing tends to be stigmatized. uh, When there are proposals for social housing uh, in neighborhoods, oftentimes you find NIMBY movements arising to trying to prevent the construction of that housing. Um, So it's become a real problem. Uh, It's not inherent to social housing itself. As I said, there are many good examples from other countries where social housing has been done very well uh, and is actually viewed not as something negative, but as something highly desirable. Uh, but that's not the sorts of policies that we have pursued. Mm. If we had those sorts of policies, we could be building good quality social housing across the city and provide opportunities for people who uh, who you know, may have low incomes uh, to, to live in a variety of different parts of the city, instead of seeing them increasingly concentrated uh, in just a handful of of neighborhoods.
1: So I got to ask, why is this uh, not at the top of our public policy agenda?
3: Well, yeah, that's the million dollar question or, or the multi-billion dollar question. Um, there's not a quick and easy answer to this. Um, there are several things that are required to address this. One is that we need a meaningful national urban policy, including a, a national uh, housing policy. Uh, and we really don't have much of one in Canada. Uh, this, I think, does require leadership from higher scales of government, uh, first and foremost from the national government. So in the, in the case of the Netherlands, which you know is a good comparative example, uh, about 98% of municipal revenues comes from the national government. And, and this has all sorts of implications that we could talk about for, for days. but. One aspect of that is that they have the funding they need in, in order to provide good quality social housing. Um, in the Canadian context, we, our, our national programs are, are pretty meager. Uh, they're considerably more meager than they were a few decades ago. Uh, and uh, the provinces, you know, when, when the national government stopped handling social housing, they downloaded responsibilities to the provinces the provinces then downloaded those responsibilities to the municipalities, but never gave them the revenue tools uh, to actually be able to address those responsibilities. So it's you know it's about leadership from higher scales of government, both the national government and the provincial government. It's about providing the revenue streams that are necessary to provide this, to provide good quality social housing, and. It's also about, you know, addressing the ideology that led to the destruction of the social housing programs that we did, which is this ideology that the market always knows best. Uh, The market does lots of things, it does lots of things well, but it's important to remember that the market always responds to effective demand. It does not respond to social need. If you don't have money that you can spend, the market does not respond. Uh, And so there needs to be non-market mechanisms to address those things that the market does not do well. Uh, And as long as we're enthralled by the notion that the market always knows best, we're going to have difficulty coming up with those non-market mechanisms. End of line.
2: Thanks for listening and see you again soon.
1: been listening to sprawlcast and actually this is just the beginning of this conversation Uh, we're going to keep it going later this month at the new calgary library the sprawl is collaborating with best of calgary to put on a discussion about this topic and how we can take it to the next level how do we bridge the divide in our city that's on may 29th at the central library and the event is free so all are welcome you can find out more about that on our website www sprawlcalgary.com you can also find an article on this subject on our website along with links to the reports that we've been discussing here our theme music is by dan d augustino and kenny murdoch and our c-train narrator is holly mcconnell thanks for listening and hope to see you on may 29th